Well, brethren, I bring greetings from Boston Lake Baptist Church. The saints are delighted to have Pastor Grumbos come and minister to them. And I trust they are praying for us even as we gather together uh, this morning. May I invite us to open our Bibles to Psalm, Psalm number 14. I want to bring to us the word I've entitled Sobering Reflections. Sobering Reflections. Now, we, we are given an account of this psalm that it is written by David, the man after God's own heart. But we see that David is wrestling with so real issues in mind. He has in mind the fallen man, but he also has in mind the faithful God. He has in mind the condition of sin that is reigning in the heart of man. But he also has in mind the compassionate heart of God. Now, what we find in this psalm is that David is overwhelmed by the concern of those that have no fear, no regard for God. But interestingly, David does not point out who these men are, but we have the idea that there is so much folly in the hearts of those that do not honor God. In this psalm, we find David acknowledges that despite man's folly, this God who's all-knowing is always near to those that are righteous. These men who are folly in mind and heart, they try to dismiss the concept of God's existence. But David knows full well that God is there because he uses a language that employs the reality of God, that God looks down from heaven in verse 2. The looking down and, and, and seeing all that which is revealed concerning the, this man reveals something concerning God's omniscience, his all-knowing heart and mind. It also means that there is absolutely no one who can hide anything from God. Absolutely no one. Now just to set the context. This song does not have a particular concept or context or occasion under which this was written. So many people tend to submit that it's possible David wrote this song when Saul was persecuting him. Others tend to say that Absalom, when he rebelled against his father, maybe could be the time that David wrote this song. And that's just to say there is no particular occasion that you can place this song. But when you look at the very Closing verse of chapter 14. We, we find that the writer, rather David himself, he talks in particular of the restoration of Jacob or Israel. And one can conclude and say it's possible he is recounting the faithfulness of God as displayed toward those who would be exiled and how God will be gracious to them and the salvation which God in his mercy will bring to them. But all these might seem quite speculative, but what we know is this is the reality of not only the time of old, but the reality of the time even now. What does the word of God say? Please do read with me uh, from verse 1 of chapter 14 of Psalm. The title of the section is Folly and Wickedness of Man. For the choir director is Psalm of David. He says, 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is any who understands who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great, uh, in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put the shame, the counsel of the afflicted. But the Lord is his refuge. All that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. Three reflections that I want to bring to us, just as instructive to us, but also as encouragement. As you've seen in your bulletin, there is the folly of the God deniers then there is the divine scrutiny upon mankind, and then lastly, the firm defense for the righteous. The folly of God deniers. What we are given in this section is David is giving an analysis concerning the man or the men that reject God. He uses very strong language to describe who these men are. He says the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Just from the onset we are given the identity of all this man or men are. Their identity is the fool. Now the apostle, or rather David David is so concerned with what this fool has said in his heart. He's saying God does not exist. God does not exist. This term, the adjective fool, is Nabal. It conveys the idea of someone or something that wither. One who is devoid of moral aptitude. It speaks about someone who practically has engaged his mind and his heart and arrived at the conclusion that nothing else matters. This is one who is devoid of morality. The focus is not one's intellectual. Intellectual capacity, rather, it, it, it all focused on one's morality. When we talk about a fool, it is one who's perverse in mind and heart. This fool can be stretched further in terms of identity. It, it is the term that can reflect on one who so easily forgets God. Who so easily forgets God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 6 conveys such a thought that they so easily are forgetful, speaking of Israel. 32 verse 21 still conveys the same principle of forgetfulness. Remember, these harsh words were used against Job's wife in Job 2.10. He said, you speak like a foolish woman, one who lacks morality. The identity is of one who lacks moral compass, moral judgment. The case of Amnon and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, 12 through 13. 
But this man or the woman or these fools can also be known for their irreverent behavior. They have no regard for God. They have no regard for what God has said. They do not care the consequences that might come as a result of God, as a result of what God has said. Look at Achan in Joshua and chapter 7, verse 15. God gave explicit instructions not to collect any, but subject all the booty to burning. What did Achan do? He kept some back. No reverence, so disrespectful to God. But it can also mean one was ungenerous with crassness. It is speaks of one who's worthless. It's a word used of the man called Nebo, the wife to Abigail. Abigail actually used this name or the word in reference to the husband. She described the husband. Remember, David had sent his men to go and inquire, or rather look for food, and they went to Abigail's home. And Nebo says, who is this God that I should honor or fear? David had become very upset. He went and he wanted to kill this man. The wife, Abigail, comes forth and he says, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man. For as his name is, so also is he. He is a fool. This fool usually is very aggressive, very aggressive and very dismissive of what truth and what true truth is. So David's focus and concern is not really about how smart or not smart this man is, but it has everything to do with one's morality. It has everything to do with one's thinking. It has everything to do with one's actions. The fool. One was wicked. Wretched in heart. One who is blind. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Spurgeon says the atheist is the fool, preeminently and a fool universally. He would not deny God if he were not a fool by nature. And having denied God, it is no marvel that he becomes a fool in practice. If you are to read Psalm 10, Psalm 53, they all talk about this fool. But let's look at their rationality. Because this is the inner conversation that this fool is having. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God in his heart. That is the disposition of the heart. He is so convinced. Probably God is just but an illusion of one's mind. God does not exist. And if God does not exist, then I will live in how as I, as I please with this corrupt behavior, with vile deeds, and departing from anything that is good. He has said in his heart. Now what is interesting is the usage of the verb. He has said and he continues on to say. There has never been a time when he started recounting what his thinking has been or his line of rationality has been. He commands himself, he thinks to himself, he promises himself to say there is no God. There is no God in his heart. That which defines the man, the inner man in his heart. The knowledge that he has concerning God is dismissed. 
His inclination, his resolve within is that there is no God. There is no God. And therefore, the appetites he has within him is to do anything that affirms there is no God. The character that he portrays is that which shows that there is no God. The passions that he, he has within him, the courage with which he operates, the options that he tends to entertain, the judgments he gives, they are all inclined to confirm that there is no God. In other words, he has convinced himself, as long as I have the breath within my lungs, I am so convinced there is no God. Now, that makes sense when the scripture says this is called a fool. Because in Acts 17, 28 and following, Paul says, in him we live, we move, and we have our being. So when the fool says there is no God, the disposition of his heart is confirming how fool and foolish he is. He cherishes what he thinks. In fact, from the original, these two words, there is, don't appear. It just says the fool has said in his heart, no God. No God. Nothing of God. God is not. He is saying he does not exist. And the interesting thing is this word God is Elohim. It is a plural pronoun. It speaks of something that is more than one. But there is that intensity of emphasis on the singularity of God. There is no God. Who is this God? Why is the fool so hinged on dismissing the principle of God? Because this term God speaks of one who rules, speaks of one who judges, Speaks of the divine being of beings. It speaks of the one who works, the one who possesses power and also sovereignty. So when he says there is no God, what is he dismissing? The ruler of his soul. The ruler of his heart. The very being of God. He says he does not observe this God or obey this God to whom he has to give an account. He wants to be the leader and the ruler of his own soul. Scripture says they profess to be wise. And they become fools. This language of those that say God does not exist, I think we're very familiar with it. Very familiar with it. Some of the men and women we work with. Some are friends of ours. Some might even be our relatives. That is a very dangerous place to be. David is concerned about men that think this way. And what is their resolve? Utter rejection of God. This man denies plainly this God whose evidence is in all things created. This man has resolved to not ever bring his life under submission to this great God. He has resolved not to let God be the ruler of his own soul. He has resolved to reject God. And this is basically utter insanity of those that have said there is no God. The resolve is we do not want God to rule over us. 
We do not want God to dictate how our lives are lived. We do not want to have God as our judge. We'd rather be our own masters. Now that language portrays the level of depravity there is in man. No one who is living with God seeks after God. Scripture is very clear. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But let's look in the second place, not only the folly of humanity, but the divine scrutiny upon humanity. It's one thing to hear, or rather to read, these words and think it's just David saying what he's saying. Look at verse 2. The Lord looked down, rather has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand or seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt there is no one who does good, not even one. There are interesting descriptions we have here. God is described with human body parts. That is anthropomorphic language. And this is meant to help us understand who this God is. But he's not saying God has an eye. It doesn't say that God has a hand. But these are essential body parts which we know their functions. So hence David explains to us. He says the Lord has looked. Has looked down from heaven. Three ideas there. First we see his engaged gaze. And that is the eye of omnisciency. The Lord knows all things. There is absolutely nothing hidden from him. The Lord has looked down from heaven. This is the same language you find in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 12. He, he looked down and he saw the wickedness of man was great. On earth, the Lord has looked down. Now this, this conveys an idea of God bending forward. To look, literally squinting the eye to see that he misses nothing. This is the, the language, hanging over or leaning forward. And I, I think we, we can relate with that. When we want to see something, either interesting or something we're not sure of, what do we do with our eyes? We engage the gaze. We squint our eyes. This is looking with intensity. The language employed here is looking as it were with anxiety. The Lord is looking from heaven. He's examining anything and everything. He, he has paid attention to what is going on. This does not mean God does not know all things. That he is very much focused on what is happening in one area and then he forgets about the other. No, he's examining. He says he looks down from heaven. He's looking upon the earth. He's looking at all men. Young and old. He's looking at the pretenders and the genuine ones. He's looking down from heaven. Nothing escapes his gaze. He is like the watchtower. He's looking out. And he says he's looking from heaven upon the sons of men. Upon all peoples. He's expressing, this, this is an expression of God examining. And what did the Lord God find? The Lord God in scriptures, it says from verse 2, in fact, his desire was to see if there was any that understands, if there was any that sought after him. 
So not only is the Lord God engaged in the gaze, he's also inquiring in his gaze, seeking. He wants to see to it that if there is even one, you'll be pleased. He desires to see that there might be one or two that really learns and understands who this God is. Because a blanket statement has been made, a fool has said in his heart. How many others are identified in that very statement? The Lord desires to know. But look at the judicial findings. What is it that God found out? Five things stand out. The Lord found in verse 1 that they are crooked by nature. That's what, this, this is the verdict. It's one thing to go to the courthouse here on earth. It's very easy to bribe the judge. How many times we have heard of individuals that had committed a crime but they walked free? But not with this heavenly judge who stooped, who bent forward, who leaned forward to see. And then he's judging. Look at verse 1. They are corrupt. That's what it, he found out. Now when you look at verse 1, that adjective, the fool, this focus on an individual, one man. But the next statement, he says, they. That is plural. More than one, the multiplicity of those that can be identified with verse 1a. He says, they are corrupt. There is nothing true in them. Everything is but corrupt. Their hearts are corrupt. Their deeds are corrupt. Let me just read this section for us. Genesis 6, 11 through 12. Now the earth was corrupt, or in other words, crooked, in the sight of God. Allow me to pause just there before I read the rest. I love the clarification that comes in Genesis 6, 11, and 12. The world is crooked in the sight of God. And at times in the sight of man, things might seem all right. Because as men, we know how to live and how to behave ourselves. But we do not know what lies in our hearts. But the world was crooked. Corrupt in the sight of God. And the earth was filled with violence. The same language. God looked on the earth. And behold, it was corrupt. Twice the same word has been used. It was corrupt. For all flesh, in other words, all men had corrupted their ways upon the earth. All men. No exception. All men. Not even one. Not even one. It's the same language employed in Romans chapter 3. In our own time we can read from verse 9 down to verse 19. It's the language that speaks about not only the corruptness of man, but how dead man is. But look at the second thing he found. Their repulsive works. He says in verse 1. They, are, they have committed abominable deeds. The Lord is nauseated when he looks at what man does apart from God. The Lord is not pleased. Everything that man does apart from God is detestable in his sight. No one does good. I think that's why in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24, 26, and 28, we find a repeated statement 
God gave them over. The Lord rejected them. He did not desire because of the level of impurity that was found in them. And all that which they did did not bring glory to God. They are repulsive works. But we, saw, we also see their debased character quality. There is nothing worth praising about them. Look at verse 1 and verse 3. Repeatedly this statement has been made. There is no one who does good. No one. Verse 3. There is no one who does God, not even one. The same language, Romans 3, 10 through 12. There is none that does good. It does not matter how good things we do in the sight of another man if it is done apart from God. If it is also done without, firstly, God having changed our hearts, all that which we do, no matter how good it might be, no one does good in the sight of God. Now, I don't think David is saying that going to work is doing no good. I think when you do things, you suppose like especially in the life of the church. If Christ is not reigning in one's heart, all that which we do is but worthless. Is but worthless. Not even one. Spurgeon submitted, this is the level that confirms the fallenness of humanity. That Humanity has no oasis like in the desert. He says, man who is without God is like the night without a star. It's like hell without the bottom. What, did, what else did God find out? Their vile disposition. They have all turned aside. Now, when you read that word from face value, turning aside, it sounds, it doesn't sound as bad as it means. But the original, talk about the level of depravity that is in the heart, the level of defilement there is in man. It speaks about one being tainted. One having become filthy, one that is releasing offensive order, turned aside. That's the language of apostasy. They have turned aside. The Lord is not pleased whatsoever concerning this man. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless, according to Romans 3.12. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Isaiah 32, verse 5 through 6, it says, No longer will the fool be called noble, or the rogue be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness. To practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the, uh, the hungry person unsatisfied and without drink from the thirst. But he says, no longer will good be spoken of this man called for worthless. To turn aside is to become sour. This is the level of depravity. But lastly, what do we find here? What did the Lord God find? Their dreadful contempt against God. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, Do all the workers of wickedness not know 
who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord. Verse 5, he says, There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. Now, in verse 4, when you read those words, do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat my people as they eat bread? One would wonder, is the Lord God talking about man eating man's flesh? Or what, what, what is this language uh, conveying to us? It's basically the language of injustice. Persecution that is done against those of God. Those of God are being persecuted because of God and the testimony which these men and women bear concerning the name of God. The workers of wicked or wickedness are persecuting the people of God, the lowly in heart. And this is where you see that when scripture talks about a fool, Dismissing the concept of God, it comes back to confirm that they know full well that God is there. Because they are inclined to persecuting these men. Look at verse 6. You have put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. That is the language of the lowly or the poor, the righteous men. You are persecuting them and afflicting them. And we have that close, but the Lord is his refuge. The level of persecution they employ is that which is offensive to God. But not only is it offensive, but look at what it says in verse 5. But they are in great dread. The question is, why would they be in great dread? Why are they afraid? Why are they scared? Well, we see here, he says, for God is with the righteous generation. They know that these men are different from us. They affirm the existence of God. They affirm this moral uprightness which is given by God. They affirm the salvation which comes from God. These men have a testimony of God's saving grace. And then we have these men who are called the fools. The atheists. They come and despise the afflicted, the lowly, the humble in heart. That's more like Matthew chapter 5 right there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are the ones being persecuted. They eat them up. They persecute them. Freely and comfortably. But we find that they are full of fear at the same time. And this should actually bring a lot of consolation, dear ones. If we identify ourselves according to verse 6, as those who are afflicted, the poor at heart, because of the testimony we bear, and we bear the reproach, the persecutions that we are faced with, those that deny the existence of God, that should bring a lot of consolation to us. It is different if our persecution is coming because of the way we are living apart from God. But we were persecuted because of the testimony that comes from God, we should be greatly comforted. So we find the findings of God was that these men were crooked, by nature repulsive, debased, but they were also full of fear. And lastly, the firm defense for the righteous. Why should we not fear? Why should we not fear of those that call themselves the wise when in reality they are not? Well, we have firstly the Lord's assured presence.
presence with us. This is what we find in verse 5b. So these wicked men, they are in great dread. Why? For the Lord is with the righteous generation. He is with them. He is there with them. They are great dread. Those that are wicked, those that are righteous, is God's gracious defense given to his people. He is with us. David can echo these words with confidence. That even if there are men, select men that confirm in their heart that there is no God, at the same time, there are those who confirm in their heart that there is God and God is with us. It also means for those that are in a secular engagement. You probably have experienced men that come call you names and demean you and speak ill of you on the account of God and his gracious dealings with you. One thing that should bring much consolation is that he is with you. He is with us. Not only is he with us, we have in the second place the Lord's assured protection. In verse 6, he speaks about the fools, you who put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. Contrast, but the Lord is his refuge. The Lord is his hiding place. The Lord encircles those that are his. The Lord broods over those that are his. Even if the pain comes because of the name of Christ and the persecution we receive, we have to be assured of God's protective presence with us. He broods over us. Psalm 125 verse 2, he says, As the mountains around Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from time forth and forever. He is ever there. He is ever there. And many a times, even we that are known of God and we love God, we feel at times that the Lord is not there like he has forgotten about us. Fear. Overwhelm our hearts. When you read these words, you have put to shame the counsel. The way these Christians think, the way these Christians plan, the way these Christians live, you, the fools, those of the world, you have treated with contempt and you have made them feel uncomfortable. You have caused them to feel as if they do not belong. They can talk about Christ and his saving grace in their lives openly because you will ridicule them. David says, the Lord is his refuge. He is there with them. Regardless of the reproach that might come. Regardless of the, the, the purposes and the plans and the acts of these wicked men to be carried out against those that love the Lord, he says, the Lord is there with them. In the last place, find the Lord's anticipated salvation. David is anticipating the hope of deliverance. This is the language of longing in verse 7. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and be glad. David started off in 
verse 1, with a great concern. But he ends the psalm with great comfort. God is there. God will bring salvation. The Lord will deliver. The Lord will conquer. In all of these things, for those that dismiss the concept of God, it does not matter. Because whether we say God does not exist, that does not erase the fact that God exists. Those that who desire to pursue the cravings of their hearts, the violence of life they live, convinced that God is not there to even hold me accountable. But we need to realize in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, We shall one day stand and give an account. The fact that I convince myself that God does not exist does not Take God from the throne. He is still reigning. He shall reign forever and ever and evermore. The righteous man, when they, they think about the reality of God's existence and his reigning on the throne, that brings much consolation and comfort with great joy. But one thing we need to know about those that try to pretend that God does not exist Verse 5 says, they are filled with great dread. I tend to ask the question, dear ones. They come out with loudly pronounced voices to convert many to agree with them and convince many that God does not exist. The question is, when it's night time and the lights are off, and the conscience kicks in. What runs in their minds? Do you think at some point they begin to question, what if what I've come to believe is not true and God truly does exist? What if I've dismissed the concept of heaven? Or what if heaven does exist? What if I have taken away that concept of hell from my mind and my heart? What if hell does exist? When all the lights are off, what runs through their minds? And I assume that not all of us have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. When the lights are off, we may not have come out and say there is no God, but the way we live confirms that there is no God. That is your, your, your conviction. There is a thing called practical atheism. Men that know that God exists and yet they live as if he does not exist. I want to make an assertion. God exists. Heaven exists. Hell exists. Judgment is coming. Christ will return. We will all one day stand before that judgment seat and will give an account one after another. And on that day, there will not be mom or dad or sister or brother standing next to us. We will be by ourselves. Just like how we have been convinced in the innermost hearts that God does not exist. That day, you will stand by yourself. Or how woeful is going to be. All your life you've lived believing that God does not exist. And then you will stand before the judge who exists. And you give an account to him. May God be gracious to us. If among us there are those who do not know the Lord. It's only him that can save you. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and die. For sinners such as yourself and myself. To rescue our souls. It doesn't matter how old or young we are. Christ died for sinners. Just as yourself and myself. And may you desist from thinking that God does not exist.
because he does. If you don't surrender your soul to Christ, you go down to the grave holding on to this concept that God does not exist. Remember the all-seeing eye of God. Nothing is hidden from him. And when he comes to judge, he will judge according to what you have done. And one day he's going to ask you, what have you done with my son's death on the cross? What have you done with my son's blood that flowed on Calvary's tree? What have you done with that? And we give an account. And the good Lord had added a blessing to this preaching of his word as we've done this sobering reflection. Shall we pray together? Well, Father, we thank you that you know all things and you know every individual seated in this auditorium. You know them that are still languishing in sin, pursuing sin, and you know them that have convinced themselves in their hearts that you do not exist. Father, we pray that you would confound their hearts and their minds and call them to yourself and save them through your son's blood. Be gracious to all of us. Thank you that you saved us. And thank you that, Lord, we encounter persecutions from all sides. And we are so grateful that you ever are present with us. You do protect us. And you will ultimately bring that long-awaited for salvation. And we shall rejoice in your presence forever and ever. And while we wait for the return of your son, Father, we pray that you would keep us faithful. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.